You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. What's up, TaxSmart investors? Welcome to the TaxSmart REI podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about what happens when you personally use a short-term rental. Because if you personally use a short-term rental, you could actually blow up the entire tax loss that you could have otherwise claimed. So it's really important to understand these personal use rules if you are using the short-term rental loophole, which we have covered in depth in prior podcast episodes. So today, we're going to be telling you all about these rules what to watch out for. And today I've got Justin Shore joining me. Tom is currently vacationing, I guess, in Mexico for the week. So he is missing this podcast. I think this is the first episode that he has missed maybe ever. We finally got him to take a vacation. (laughs) That's that's what it is. We finally got him to take a couple days off. And the thing is, I don't even think he's taking days off. He's down at like a marketing conference right now. So Anyway, okay. we, we, we're missing Tom, but we got Justin here. Justin is a advisory manager at our firm, does a really awesome job leading our team of advisors and doing a ton of tax research, working with a lot of our clients on tax strategy and advisory. So I wanted to get him on today because I think that he'll be able to add a whole lot to this episode, probably more than I could actually. So before we <laughs> jump into it, I want to get one quick word from our sponsor. Recession Resilient are two words that are heard often when discussing investing in mobile home parks and self-storage. But what does that really mean? And what happens if there's not a recession? At Crystal View Capital, we are vertically integrated and have over 150 employees focusing on assuring our assets perform daily, regardless of market conditions. With over $85 million in distributions paid to investors since 2014, we focus on downside protection upside maximization, and all the hard work in between. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about our current offerings, please visit crystalviewcapital.com or click the link in the show notes. All right, Justin, give us a high-level overview as to what this is. Yeah. So, you know, we get this question pretty often from a lot of our investors and it it typically, you know, circles around short-term rentals and the idea of, Hey, I've got this great vacation property. I'd like to occasionally stay in it myself. Is that okay? Is that going to cause me any issues with the IRS, you know, or are there any limitations to how often I can use this property? Right. Which is pretty important to understand because generally we are buying short-term rentals in some pretty cool locations, right? Like I've got a beach rental. I know a lot of our clients have also have beach rentals. They have mountain rentals. So understanding if they can go and stay at their own rental is obviously important. And you might even be listening to this, realizing for the first time that these rules even exist. So hopefully, like we're going to go over these rules, but hopefully you're not looking retrospectively and going, oops, I violated these rules. Uh, We do try to, with all of our clients, at least explain them when they're jumping into the short-term rental stuff, because it can be a trap. So Tell us, what about personal use matters or why does personal use matter? Yeah, so Section 280A has a lot of detail that encompasses all these like different concepts around personal use. And essentially, the way that it outlines these limitations is that if you stay at your rental for more days than you're permitted, 
you're going to run into some limitations on deductions. So the first thing is that even if you stay at your property for just a handful of days, you are going to have some deductions that are going, going to be reduced. They're essentially going to be prorated between the amount of days you stay there personally versus the amount of days that it's rented out. It's important to even know there that it's the factors there are your numerator there is the days you use it personally. And the denominator in that fraction is the days rented, not necessarily the days that it's available for rent. A lot of people want to throw that 365 at the bottom. It's really, really important to know that you're dividing by the total number of days rented. Now, that's the first consideration is just that reduction or that proration of expenses. But the second one that's even a more heightened consideration is that they impose specific limitations that will prevent you from being able to take a loss on the property at all. And that's where we are exceptionally diligence in that, especially in the first year, if you're using something like bonus appreciation to enhance your deductions. Right. So the deductions are limited to the income that the property generates if you stay at the property for too long. And we'll go over what too long is here in a second. But what that means is if I put a property into service in like, I don't know, November, and then I spend a week there for Thanksgiving, I spend a week there for Christmas, and maybe I spend another week there in between, I would be in violation of these rules. And if I rented it during that time, so since I purchased it in November to the end of the year, let's say I pull 10K of rents and then I go and I cost segregate this thing and I've got 150K of bonus depreciation, you know, I'll have a really sweet, sizable tax loss. But because I stayed there for Thanksgiving and Christmas and a week in between, I've likely violated these rules and I can't use the tax loss. The deductions are limited to the income. If I only generated $10,000 of income, then I can only claim $10,000 of deductions. That's all my deductions, the prorated, the bonus depreciation, everything. It's going to zero out. Like I'm not going to be able to take the tax loss. So before we jump into the rules, and I also want to kind of get some clarity around that proration between personal and business use, what are we prorating? What expenses are subject to that proration? But before we jump into that, what happens to the tax loss? Like if I if I have this tax loss that I cannot claim because I violated these rules, what happens to the tax loss? Yeah, so this is a pretty bizarre crux that a lot of people aren't aware of is so if you have that scenario that Brandon's talking about here where you've got that $150,000 loss thanks to the bonus appreciation, if you're limited to only being able to basically take your income down to zero from the rental activity and you've got say $140,000 of excess losses that are now going to be carried forward, they will carry forward into future years. But the interesting thing is that those losses, because they were originally incurred subject to this rule that it is limited to the amount of rental income that you are earning from the property, that same rule continues to apply to those losses as they carry forward into future years. So, so they can it, never like unlock and it's kind of like the whole real estate professional right. status thing, right? If I had a loss from a rental property in a prior year where it was passive, and that loss is suspended, and then I become a real estate professional in a future year, I don't unlock those suspended passive losses. So this is kind of the same thing, mm -hmm. if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, exactly. And as you can kind of imagine in a scenario like that, if you are carrying forward that substantial loss, it could take several years for you to absorb all of that with rental income, which is really, in essence, 
taking the majority of that big benefit of accelerating those deductions is because you accelerated them and then you just forced yourself to spread them out over the next five to seven years. I will say if you're a great operator, like if you're great at hospitality, you're great at taking the photos and getting premium rents. Short-term rentals produce a lot of cash flow for great operators. So if you do trip these rules, maybe unintentionally, I would say it's not the end of the world because that loss would carry forward. And maybe in the second year, third year, you're absolutely crushing it from a cash flow perspective. You Mm. would have this shield, so to speak, these losses that have carried forward to utilize. But as Justin said, you don't unlock them if your income has been zeroed out from all your deductions. So that's the major downside is that these things could carry forward multiple years if you're not producing a ton of cash flow from your short-term rentals. Exactly. Let's circle back on the proration. We talked about like if you have personal use and business use and you trip these rules, first you have to prorate expenses. And again, we're going to talk about what the actual like tripping of these rules looks like here in a second. So I don't want to jump into that right this second, but what expenses get prorated? And what does that mean when you say prorated between personal and business use? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So the expenses that are going to be prorated are the things that you can think of that are really variably impacted by the rental operations themselves. So that's going to be a lot of your things like, you know, repairs and maintenance being the big one, potentially things like uh, cleaning, those types of things. The expenses that are not going to get prorated are your property taxes and your mortgage interest. And the IRS looks at those as they're being incurred on a pretty much like a straight line sort of basis on a monthly or daily basis. And they aren't really impacted by, you know, you using the property a little bit personally versus uh, how many days it's actually rented out. But everything else that can be really directly attributable to the rental operation itself. Those are all of your expenses that are going to wind up getting prorated. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. All right. So let's move into the actual tripping of the rules. So walk us through the two quantitative tests that you have to pay attention to in order to avoid tripping these rules and having deductions limited to income. So the, the the rules that we're talking about tripping here is that you are permitted to stay in the property for the greater of either 14 days or 10% of the days that you rent it out. So in a scenario, maybe where you rent the property out for 180 days during the year, you're greater than those two numbers is going to be 18 instead of 14. So you've got a little bit more wiggle room. Now, most of our clients will just be safe and stick to the 14 because nobody's got a crystal ball. You don't know exactly, you know, here we are in March. We won't know exactly how many days you're going to rent the property out before the end of the year. You might have a pretty good inclination, but until you're getting maybe to like the late third quarter, fourth quarter, it's probably safe to stick with the 14. Okay. So to kind of repeat that, we have two tests. Test number one is 14 days. Test number two is 10% of the total days the property was rented, I presume at fair market value. And what you're doing is you're calculating both of those and you're taking the greater of those tests. So if I rent the property for 100 days, then test one is 14 days. Test two is 10 days, right? 10% of the total rented days, 100 days. So I would use test one. 14 days, more than 14 days. So if I stay for 15 days, I have tripped the, these rules. But if I rent the property for 30, 300 days, sorry, for 300 days, now test two is 10% of 300. So it's 30 days. 
So test one is 14 days. Test two is 30 days. I'm going to use test two. And now my number to trip these rules is staying 31 days. I hope that that makes sense to everybody. So you got two tests and you're looking at the greater of the two tests when basically plus one day and you blow up the rules here. So, or you trip the rules and you blow up your ability to take losses. All right, well, let's jump into what is a personal use day? Because mm -hmm. I think I think it's really important to help people understand that you can still go to the property and not have it count as a personal use day. So where would you like to start with this? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first thing is that we should probably notate is where there is an exception to the rule, because a lot of our clients will ask the question of, well, I went to my property because there was a bunch of maintenance that needed to be done, but I was working on it. And I feel like that shouldn't count against me, you know, for the purpose of this rule. And that is actually true. If you are spending the bulk of the day working on your property, there's some reason why you had to be there for business purposes. You know, typically that's going to be like a maintenance kind of situation. Then those days would not count as a personal use day. So that's the first big caveat to that rule that can help keep yourself safe. And I think that they actually addressed that in Lucero versus Commissioner, which was a 2020 tax court case where the taxpayer had a couple short-term rentals and went there six to seven times a year to do repairs mm -hmm. and maintenance. The issue was twofold. One was 280A. So the IRS was basically saying you can't take the losses because you were there six to seven times during the year. But the other issue was material participation. So the IRS lost on 280A because the tax court basically found that the taxpayer was there working. Right. So kind of the to support what you just said, if you're there doing repairs and maintenance for the majority of your day, the majority of your trip, then those days are not going to count as personal use days. Correct. Correct. And an interesting little uh, detail that comes up in a few of these court cases that's not really explicitly stated in the tax code is that if you were to, say, bring your children with you to the property, the tax court has looked at it as though, you know, the children are not necessarily able to perform, you know, substantial work or be able to assist you with maintenance. So they even, you know, in this situation where you bring your children to the property, if if you as the property owner, as the adult are working on that property, merely having your children there with you, um, if they're playing, doing their own thing, that's not necessarily going to trigger a personal use day either, which is kind of a nice little, uh, nice benefit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely, that's definitely good to know. I didn't realize that. But I mean, we should say the burden of proof is ultimately on you. You have to be able to substantiate the fact that you worked a majority of the day or days that you were at the property. So don't think that, you know, you can just go to Publix and pick up supplies and think that yeah. your receipt is going to count as personal use day. You really need to be able to substantiate it. And, and how do you substantiate it? You do it with a time log. You have notes. You you have multiple receipts of, you know, from Home Depot and Lowe's and the stuff that you're putting in the property. You're, you have meetings on your calendar uh, with contractors and stuff. You know, I mean, you're there doing work. You're not there for enjoyment primarily. Yeah, abs absolutely. I, and I always strain that is that the, the IRS puts a burden of proof on you. A lot of times we say you're guilty until you prove your innocence. So it's a little backwards to what most people would think. Um, and really, you know, it's killing two birds with one stone there, because if you're documenting your time for like your material participation purposes, excellent. Now you've also got support against beating 280A here for this particular rule. And for those of you that aren't super familiar with, uh, you know, that we just threw out material participation and those concepts. 
We've dove into that extensively in prior episodes, but you could specifically, you could check out episodes 181 and 109, where we talk a lot about more on short-term rental specifically and material participation. So in the podcast notes that you prepared for this show, thank you very much for doing that, by the way, you have something called sneaky rules. Let's go over some of those. Yeah, absolutely. So these are kind of the uh, the little, I like to call them thorns or tripwires for taxpayers. Is there some of these items that you wouldn't necessarily think that are like right there on the surface as to like what would trigger, what are some of the other things that might trigger a personal use day? The first one was probably the easiest one to go through. So we'll start there. And we get this question a lot too, is what if I rent the property out like a discount? You know, something that is what we would consider to be below fair market value. Like, is that going to potentially cause me any issues? So in general, if you're renting out the property below fair market value, then that's going to be considered triggering a personal use day. And, you know, from a bit of a devil's advocate perspective, we can see this maybe from the IRS thinking that maybe this is a situation where you're renting it to a friend or a colleague at a heavy discount. Maybe there's some kind of quid quo quo, quid pro quo, sorry, that they don't know about. So just by default, they're going to assume that there's something a little, little fishy going on there. But yeah, one question that I get a lot of this when, when I tell clients about this, they get a little little panicky and say, what if I'm bringing my rates down because there's a seasonal shift? You know, if your property is is something that's a more of a, a heavy summer is like your peak season. Does that mean that I'm going to run into trouble if I charge lower rates in the wintertime? And that I would say is no, because that in and of itself is you're staying in line with market rents, right? If you're having to make seasonal adjustments, then you're still following the guidelines of what would be considered a, a fair market value. And an excellent way that you could be documenting that is you know, there's a lot of platforms out there, you know, like AirDNA, for example, that I know a lot of short-term rental owners like to use to try and stay competitive with their rates. That's an excellent resource. If you're not using a software, you could even be looking at what rates look like that are around your area just by kind of popping onto VRBO, Airbnb, some of those platforms to see what the properties around you that are comparable in size and finishes are, are renting for. Yeah. So this fair market rate is primarily to prevent you from you know, having family stay there at a deep discount, having close friends stay there at a deep discount having your company stay there for a very deep discount. Like you've got to be charging all these folks uh, fair market. And if you're not, then it's just going to count towards your personal use. And remember, you, you have those two tests. You have 14 days or 10% of the total rented days. And that total rented days is fair market, right? So if my family stays for a month at the beach house, then that's 30 days that I can't count as 10% of the total rented days. Like those are not going to be considered rented days. Uh, mm. So it's it's primarily to prevent family from benefiting from the tax code. And this really makes sense. You know, you don't want billionaires or mega, mega, mega rich people going out and buying all these vacation homes and just letting their family stay there for a significant amount of time, but still being able to claim, you know, bonus depreciation, all the tax losses that come with owning short-term rentals. Taxpayers don't want to subsidize that. So this rule makes sense if you think about it in that manner. But one thing that I wanted to kind of bring up along these lines is what happens if I like give a week away as part of a charity auction? Yeah, that's a really good example, too. So um, unfortunately, if you I actually just had this question from a client about a week and a half ago, too. <laughs> 
is if you were to give it away at a charity auction, that would be essentially falling in line with this concept of providing it at a below fair market rate because you're essentially renting to somebody at zero dollars. Yeah. And you don't get a deduction for the lost rents. That is also something to know because sometimes people think, well, I can take the charitable donation that I made, but you didn't actually make a donation. Like nothing Mm -hmm. came out of your pocket. You just didn't receive the rents that you otherwise would have received. So your quote unquote deduction is just claiming one week less of rental income during the year, Mm -hmm. which doesn't really even help you if you're doing this in off season where you wouldn't have rented the property anyway. So so just want to be really clear there that noble cause, don't get me wrong. I think it's great. We've considered it at our beach house as well, but don't do it for tax purposes much simpler to uh, earn the revenue uh, through traditional means and then just donate some cash. <laughs> That's a great point too. Yeah, <laughs> no, Just rent it out and turn around and donate the cash to the organization. At least you'll get your charitable deduction and you won't be tripping these personal use rules either. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So let's, let's talk about what happens if I own a short-term rental in a partnership. Do each one of the partners get this 14 days or you know, 10% of the total rental days, or is it the partnership? Yeah, unfortunately, this is measured at the partnership level. So if you were buying a short-term rental, say in the Smoky Mountains um, with, you know, with your partner, you're 50-50 in that, it's important to talk about that, especially if ideally even beforehand, if maybe you're writing your operating agreements, even write some some provisions in there that say that we both need to agree when we're going to use the property personally, because If partner A spends 10 days in the rental property and then partner B spends another 10 days, we're at 20 days there total for the partnership. And that means we're over that 14-day limit. So now we're kind of shaking a little bit because we've got to look at that. Okay, hopefully our partnership can rent this property out for more than 200 days this year to make sure that we're not exceeding that that 10% layer. And if we are, now we're into restricting those losses again. And I know that we have a bunch of tax pros that listen to this podcast. So where can they go in the Internal Revenue Code to find a citation for this? Yeah, it's under 280 cap A, D2 cap A. And the way that it's worded there is it says that the unit is used for personal purposes by the taxpayer or any other person who has an interest in such unit or by any other member of the the family. Hmm. So the... It's interesting that you use the word person. We've kind of talked about this in some prior episodes, as, um, and it can be sound very dichotomous to a lot of even tax professionals, because the word person in the IRC is actually referring to individual human beings as well as entities as well. Not aliens. Exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not, not aliens. Um, not AI. <laughs> not, not Part of the AI, AI folks. Visitors from go. Mars. <laughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> so, Chat GPT. Um, can stay at my property for a little bit. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So that that one is is a bit of a tripwire. It's a bit of a thorn. Um, And when we've mentioned that to clients in the past where they have owned, say, that property for this prior year, I get a lot of kind of wide-eyed looks on on faces. I can tell that that's uh, an issue for them in the prior year. A little bit of an oop moment. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, that's okay. We'll set you straight, folks. All right. But the the other thing here that I want to talk about with short-term rentals and partnerships just briefly is the material participation issue too, because, you know, material participation is looked at on an individual level, not at a partnership level. 
So if both partners, and this is where it gets weird, right? So it's not fair. Personal use is looked at at the partnership level. You aggregate all partners' personal use of the activity to determine if the losses are going to be capped or not. And then the material participation piece is looked at on the individual level. So each individual partner has to materially participate if they want to use the tax losses that are created from investing in these short-term rentals, running cost sick studies, and getting that bonus depreciation. And that can cause a lot of pain for people because one of the tests for material participation that a lot of short-term rental owners go for is 100 hours and more than anyone else. So if Justin and I are partners on a short-term rental and I work 101 hours, then Justin has to work 100 hours and more than anyone else, more than me. So he has to work 102 hours. So the point is, is that if we're going for this 100 hours more than anyone else test, only one partner is going to be deemed materially participating. So when you're partnering with short-term rentals and everybody wants the tax benefits, everybody has to work 500 hours if you want to really maximize that. So my suggestion with short-term rentals in partnerships is that one, you treat it like an actual business. So if I'm buying beach homes and vacation homes uh, or just any short-term rentals, I'm not going to go and visit them. And nobody in the partnership is going to go visit them. And we will say that in the operating agreement that you're not allowed to use it. This is for financial purposes only. That's my number one suggestion. And then my number two suggestion is to just get really clear on that material participation piece. If you're a, you know, if you're kind of the the GP, I'll say, we, we, we work with a couple short-term rental funds where their GPs are materially participating and their LPs are not. And that's a very clear dynamic. It's a very clear expectation. And that works great. But if you're creating this smaller short-term rental partnership and you're the operator, you're the GP, I would highly recommend that you just set the record straight with your investment partners that they're not going to get tax benefits from this partnership activity. Yeah. And I do want to add in there too, because I just really briefly slid in there that this also applies to family members. And Brandon, you mentioned earlier too, of like, what if I were to rent to my family members at a discount? We should probably address too that even if you rent to family members at fair market value, that is also going to trigger personal use days as well. And that that is squeezed into that same that same subparagraph that we just read under that D2A section. So that's kind of a sometimes a big surprise as well. They do get pretty specific though, at least in saying what exactly do family members constitute. And it's essentially your immediate family members. So your brothers, sisters, your parents, uh, they call those ancestors. So it could be your grandparents as well. And then lineal descendants, so your children. But once you get outside that little bubble, when you start going over to like uncles, cousins, those types of family members, those family members would be safe. But immediately it's going to trigger your personal use as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, so another scenario that we should probably talk about related to personal use days is what happens if I buy a rental, short-term rental at the end of the year, you know, middle of December, end of December, and I'm trying, I've listened to these all these podcast episodes from Paul CPA, and they tell me I have to rent it a handful of times, right? One time is risky, two times is less risky, three times is lesser risky. So it's end of the year, you know, I, I've I've got it ready to rock and roll. It's on Airbnb, it's on VRBO, but nobody's booking. I'm getting nervous. So what do I do? Well, I go into my investment groups and I say, hey, is anybody willing to rent my property for a night and I'll rent your property for a night and we'll exchange nights effectively? 
So then somebody comes on my Airbnb, they rent my property. Then I go onto their Airbnb and I rent their property. We're exchanging money back and forth. Uh, but we have no intention to actually stay at the properties. Personal use or business use? Yeah, surprisingly, that's legal or illegal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's yeah. more what we should be asking. Ooh, man. Anyway, we, we can, we'll touch on legal or illegal in a second. But first, yeah, personal use or business use? <laughs> yeah, the, in this this situation, it, it actually is going to trigger the personal use limitations as well. And it, it's interesting too. As a side note, you mentioned uh, you know whether or not I stay physically in the property or not. And this is actually housed in a completely different code section, but the IRC says that if you have the basically the legal rights to use the property, then that is considered. It doesn't matter if you've actually physically stayed or occupied the property exactly. But as we're looking at 288 and personal use limitations, this scenario actually is attacked a little bit there. It's under subparagraph B, and it says that. You are considered using the property for personal use if by any individual who uses the unit under an arrangement which enables the taxpayer to use some other dwelling unit. So what Ooh. they're really saying there in English is that if if you're making some kind of arrangement with another property owner that says, hey, yeah, you stay at mine, I'll stay at yours, that is constituting this arrangement to use some other dwelling unit. And they go further to say that it doesn't matter if you charge each other fair market rents in this scenario and you both pay one another, it's still going to be considered to fall under this arrangement to use another dwelling unit. Huh. Wow. Fascinating. So there you go. And how do we know that that's happening? Because we caught two clients doing it. It was a couple of years ago. Uh, we were like going through their Airbnb bookings and we were like, wait this is another client. Then we looked at theirs and sure enough, they were trading days and we were like, yeah, sorry guys, you can't, uh, <laughs> we're not going to take that position. So look, like don't just don't, just don't do that. I totally understand the FOMO that comes with seeing your friends, seeing your colleagues, your peers, getting these awesome tax deductions because their CPAs are letting them do all this crazy stuff. But guess what? All it takes is one person in a CPA's book to get audited. And if the IRS goes through that and they realize, oh, wow, this is like very wrong. Let's go pull a couple more of these CPAs clients. And then they go through them and they see, oh, they're all wrong. Now we're going to go pull all of the clients. That's how you get. I mean, I mean, audits are random, but they don't have to be so random. So if you're working with a provider that's letting you do these things, you should be the one that presses pause and be asking yourself, is this safe for me? Because I will also kind of expand on the illegal versus illegal. This is illegal. There's tax avoidance, which is one thing. That's using the code to avoid tax legally, right? That's real estate professional status. That's the short-term rental loophole when you do it right, right? We're, we're using cost segregation studies and bonus depreciation to create tax losses, which reduces my taxable income. That is tax avoidance. And then there's tax evasion. I am evading tax through illicit means and this is tax evasion. I have no real business intent other than evading taxes during this taxable year. So be really, really careful. Again, you got to push that FOMO down when you start feeling it bubble up. And I know exactly where everybody's at because I'm in all these entrepreneurship groups and I am I get shiny spoon effect all the time. Somebody's like, oh, I just launched this new course stuff and I'm going to net $300,000. And I'm like, oh my God, we need to go do that. But guess what? 
every time that you do that, it distracts you from your mission, distracts you from building income, building wealth. And in this case, it can land you in very hot water. So don't do that. Don't go through these like investment groups and start exchanging rental days. Not only are they personal use days anyway, but if you are audited and found out, the penalties could be extremely stiff because this is evasion. This is not avoidance. So yeah. I will step off of my soapbox and <laughs> we will jump into the next thing here. So one of the, I would say like the more aggressive, I'll call them commentators that we hear from occasionally is, you know, they beg the question of how's the IRS going to know that I'm triggering these, these personal use limitations. And the other one too, is some people will assert that, well, all this stuff is so new, like Airbnb and VRBO really just started taking off in the last few years. The IRS probably isn't on the up and up with this yet. It's important to know that these rules have been around since 1954. So they've been nailing taxpayers for violating these rules for almost 70 years. We've got to imagine they've got a pretty good playbook of, you know, for their auditors to be running off of and things to look for. And as far as being able to know when you're violating these rules, if you're in a situation of an audit, like we said before, the burden of proof is on you. In a lot of these cases, they will assume that you are you know, falling into one of these these personal use categories if you can't prove otherwise. And there's been a lot of instances and cases we've seen before where they will get down to the nitty gritty and ask for things like personal bank statements and personal credit card statements to be able to verify where you actually in the city where your short-term rental is located. So they can get really down to, I would say, like the, the nitty gritty details to be able to determine uh, or at least cause some kind of doubt in your position if you can't prove otherwise. So you don't want to get too cute with those rules, for sure. You, you don't want to get cute with these rules at all. So thank, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and everybody, appreciate you being an active, avid listener of our podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. We will wrap up right there. So if you enjoy what you're listening to and you want more information, if you want to become a client, you can check out therealestatecpa.com. Or if you want to join our group of real estate investors where we answer tax and accounting questions all day long, we have 16,000 members in this group. Uh, you can join the TaxSmart REI group on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash groups slash TaxSmart investors. Facebook.com slash groups slash TaxSmart investors. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.